All right, let's, let's turn together this morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, to 2 Samuel chapter 2. If you've missed the last few weeks for some reason, uh, then you might not know, but we have, after several months back, finishing the book of 1 Samuel and dealing with some other things, we've now returned to the narrative and the historical account and to the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, what we have seen is that in the first couple of chapters, we're going to begin reading this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, but up to the, through the 11th verse of the second chapter, what we have seen has been uh, God bringing about his purposes for David. Although it may not have been what David expected, for David knew that he was to be made king over Israel uh, and, and, and had known this for many, many years. He now hears of Saul's death. Saul was the only obstacle to his coming to the throne over Israel. And perhaps in chapter 1, as he hears of Saul's death and, and laments for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for Israel and God's glory, uh, he's thinking cer certainly now is the time. And so what we saw last time, though, is that God's providence and God's plans for David did not always go perhaps the way David had hoped. And so God plants his king and establishes his kingdom in Judah, in, in the southern kingdom, separated from the northern and larger kingdoms of Israel, and he puts him in Hebron. And uh, we saw last time some implications of, about that and from that for our own lives. Sometimes we have to be willing to go to Hebron if we're going to follow the Lord and his plans. Not that Hebron is a terrible place, that's certainly not the point, but it was very different, I believe, than coming to reign over all of Israel, as he may have thought was going to be the case. And so, he has now been established as king, but not over all of God's people. And, and one of the realities that we mentioned last time that is now going to come into a sharper focus and is going to be explained more fully through the end of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 is going to be the opposition. For Abner, the commander of Saul's army, we read, took Ishbosheth, which was the only uh, surviving son of King Saul, and established him as king over the northern kingdom uh, and, 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 and is reigning there. And so there is this tension between now David and his opposition. And David, unlike with his Ishbosheth's father Saul, he does not consider him the true king of Israel as the Lord's anointed, as we saw, because David, as we will soon see, is more than willing to uh, take the throne. In God's providence and in his timing, he does not want to run ahead of the Lord. He does not want to ascend, and he did not ascend to the throne in Judah by violence or corruption. And we've, we've seen that time and again. But he does not have the same respect because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 8, it explains and explicitly tells us there that it was by the appointment of Abner that Ishbosheth was made to reign, uh, not by the appointment of God. And so he does not consider him to be the Lord's anointed against whom he would not raise his hand or his weapon. So we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 12. Uh, and as we read, let me, let me give you one more little maybe structural with regard to the text uh, encouragement. And that is, this is a peculiar passage to take by itself. And most pastors that I, that I read and respect and most of the men that you hear preach this passage uh, if they have the time and, and in the right place in God's providence, they, they take the rest of chapter 2 that we're going to read this morning all together with all of chapter 3. But it becomes a marathon reading uh, 
but the, the reality is the, the theme and the point of those passages is much the same. Because this that we will read today from verse 12 to the end of chapter 2 is the first Abner incident. It's the first incident of the enmity and the opposition between Abner and Joab and his brothers and the servants of David in the kingdom of Judah. But then in chapter 3, we're going to be given the second and the third of these incidents. And so most, most preachers take the first incident, the second incident, and the third incident to structure the story and the historical narrative. And I think there is some real benefit to doing that. We're not going to do it that way because I think there are also some very practical things that we can learn from just the end of chapter 2 here in this first incident with Abner uh, alone and, and take some real practical application from it. So we're going to begin reading in, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Before we read, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we ask that you would come and bless the, the reading of your word, that you would bestow upon us your grace by the ministry of your spirit, for we acknowledge that we cannot discern and read and benefit from your word like we should unless it is by your hand and help. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to help us and to guide us as we read and as we think carefully about these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Second Samuel chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse 12. It says, Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and he died where he was, and all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gaia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin 
gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And after Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah, they crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Amen. It's God's word. And uh, sometimes we have these passages that may not sit so well with our modern and westernized souls and minds, but let's see what we can learn from it together. And because this is really one uh, of three accounts that in a very real way and to some significant degree go together, it's going to be a a bit of a different structure than what you normally get from me as far as the way that the passage is going to go. What I want us to do is walk down through the historical details together. Let's just talk about the text, talk about the story. There's some geography that's important. There's some family history that's important in order to really get a good grasp of actually what's happening at this place and what the events looked like and what they were for and what happened. And then at the very end, I want us to bring about some practical and spiritual application for our lives. So in order to do that, the first thing that I want us to see from this text is Abner's opposition. Okay, as we said, David has now become king over Judah, and the geography here is helpful. And if you have a study Bible, I mean, I I have an ESV study Bible, that's some really good maps. But if you have a study Bible, uh, you can see some of those maps. You can look at uh, where the the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee are, kind of splitting the uh, northern kingdom of Israel to an east and a west side. And, And you'll see where the placement of some of these things are. But essentially where the Jordan River runs... On the west side to the far south is Hebron, okay, down in the southern kingdom of Judah. And Abner and Ishbosheth and the others from Israel and, and the armies of Israel, they are encamped far north, and maybe we're not exactly sure where, but it's pretty clear that they would have been over on the eastern side of the Jordan River and far to the north. So one of the things that we have to, to get when it says in verse 12, Abner the son of Ner, the servants of Ishbosheth with him, the son of Saul, they went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. So, so the, the story begins with Abner and his men heading out for some reason. The geography is important because we must understand that it was a, a difficult and an arduous journey. It was a long journey. And, and, and when we look and see that the, the battle and the difficulty that is in this story that it did not begin with David or David's men. It did not begin with Joab. It began with Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, this wicked guy that we've seen before, who was the one responsible for appointing Ishbosheth to reign in the northern kingdom. For whatever reason, and some of those things will become clear as we study, he has now decided it's time to go on the offensive. And so it's very important that we understand that if they go over 
it, they're so interested in coming up against Judah and up against David and up against the children of Israel that they are willing to set out, cross over the Jordan River to the west side, and make the long journey all the way down to Gibeon where they are relatively close, only just a few miles from Jerusalem. His intentions were not good. That's why the story begins with that they set out on foot because it wants us to understand this. But then in 13, it says, in Joab, son of Zariah, the servants of David, they did go out to meet them at the pool of Gibeon. Uh, so now there's Joab enters the picture um, and we'll find that he has these other son, these other brothers later in the text. If you look at verse 18 and, and there are these three sons of Zariah, Joab, Abishai and Asahel. One of the interesting things about the relations in this, in this historical account is that Abner, the commander of Saul's army, still leading, militarily speaking, under the reign of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, that he was so intimately knowledgeable of Joab and Abishai and Asahel because they are now under, under David's reign in the southern kingdom of Judah. So, so what we know is that Joab and his brothers must have come under David's kingship at some point in the seven-year period of his reign. So we're now toward the end of the seven years where David is reigning in Hebron down in the southern kingdom. That period is coming to an end, as we're going to see, but we're now ending, nearing the end of that period of time. And at some point in that time, Joab, who's, who's also a mighty military uh, fighter and leader, has now come down under uh, the, the leadership and the kingship of David at Hebron in Judah. And Joab, he evidently hears of the offensive attack of Abner and of Saul's armies. And he, you can imagine, he must say to King David, we, we can't just sit here and take this. And we cannot sit here and wait for them to come upon us. And so we're going to have to do something about this. And so there's a, there's a lot of politics involved in these decisions that are being made. I mean, this is a political battle. Uh, this is not just some incidental or coincidental civil war where they happened to meet each other and they didn't like each other. And so they ended up fighting with each other. That's not at all what's going on here. There was a very intentional and purposeful offensive that came far from the north and to the east. I'm, I'm thinking about it. Not far to the north and to the east. And Abner and his men, they cross over the Jordan back to the west and they come all the way down marching upon Hebron. And, and, and Joab leads, this is verse 13 there, Joab the son of Zariah, he leads the servants of David to go up to Gibeon. So it's just outside of the southern kingdom. We're probably not 100% sure exactly where this place was, but we think we have some idea because there is even still to this day a very large cistern from the water system that would have been there, that would have provided water to the area for all of their needs. And it says that they go up to Gibeon to meet them. So Abner's on the offensive, opposing the reign of David in the south for his own purposes and benefits. And Joab, under David's leadership, leads this military defensive gesture, if you will. And he says, we're not just going to sit here and wait for them to get here. We're going to go and we're going to meet them at the pool at Gibeon. And so you see there in 13 that that's exactly what happens. And then it says they sat down the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. This is not just because they did not like each other. This is all very 
um, official and political. So they found a gathering spot and the leaders of the different regions and of the different lands with these opposing kings, they sit on separate sides and they have these official talks. And then notice where the idea comes from, verse 14. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. Now, this is something that we maybe cannot understand, but much, much like what we saw with David and Goliath, remember? There was this discussion as the two armies were encamped on separate sides of the, the valley there that... Uh, we're going to send out a representative and whoever wins that side is victorious. So this was done to some degree. And so Abner challenges Joab and says, why don't you find some of your best young men, 12 of them, and I'm going to send mine out and we're going to let them come to battle to settle this thing. Notice the challenge began with Abner though. And he must have thought that he had some upper hand, He obviously thought a great deal of his own military might and of the the warriors that he had brought with him. This was probably part of his plan all along. He had maybe been recruiting, maybe been training, we don't know. But as they make this long journey and bring it down, and then he offers this challenge to Joab, who is leading the servants of David under his kingship. you got to like Joab's response here. He's not scared. The opposition comes and Joab says, let them go, let, let them rise. And so then we have the first incident of the battle or the warfare. They arose and passed over by number 12 from each side, from those of Benjamin and Ishbosheth and those of the servant of David. And there's this peculiar language in 16, and each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. And so the place was called Helketh Hazarim which is at Gibeon. So the text seems to, seems to allude to the reality that it was a bit of a stalemate with regard to who actually won. It says that they came together, the 12 from each side, and they grabbed their opponent by the head and they thrust their swords into him or their spears into him. And we don't know exactly what happened, but they fell down together. It seems to insinuate that they all died, all 12 of them from each side, all 24 of them. However, it seemed to benefit one side and not the other because look at verse 17. And the battle was very fierce that day and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the result of what happened that day after the meeting at the pool at Gibeon is that the forces of Abner and Abner himself, they are retreating. And that's what you find beginning in verses 18 and down. They're retreating and they are running. But then there is the death of Asahel, and we're going to talk about him in just a few moments. And then Joab and Abishai, the two brothers of Asahel, they come to him again. And then there is the whining, if you will, of Abner, who is whining about how terrible it is that you would continue to pursue us and continue to strike us down. Oh, won't you just relent? And so then they blow the trumpet victoriously as they make their way back to uh, Hebron, but, but notice in chapter 3, verse 1, the connecting, the connecting sentence between the two accounts, the first and the second, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul 
became weaker and weaker. Friends, if we miss the significance of the opposition to David, then we miss a large part of what I think this text is trying to teach us. And I'm going to revisit that practical application at the end. But for now, let it suffice for us to understand that David was doing exactly what God called him to do and planned for him to do. But it was not an easy journey. There was intense opposition. There was intense fighting, a long war, this growing enmity between these two sides. As David has been in the cave for over a decade, knowing that God has made him king and called him to be king over Israel. And then he continues in the cave, and then he spends seven years at Hebron, continuing to be opposed and oppressed by his enemies around him, yet he was exactly where God ordained him to be. And there are some lessons that we will learn there. But secondly, not only Abner's opposition, let's consider Joab's commitment and effort to the defense. Joab's commitment and effort. Joab is a... uh, looks pretty good in this account. Who was Joab and how, do, and, and how do we know? We're not actually told in this immediate text and we have to go elsewhere in scripture and I'm, we're not going to turn to all those passages. I'm just going to explain to you. But they were the sons of Zariah. Joab and his brothers Asahel and Abishai that are found in this text, these mighty military guys, they were the sons of this woman known as Zariah. And it's interesting that they are numbered as their mothers and not referred to in the name of their father. We know from elsewhere that their father was dead and had been dead for some time. But one of the reasons I think also they are named among uh, by the name of their mother because Zariah would have been a sister to Abigail. Okay? And Zariah and Abigail were sisters of David. Okay? So David has a wife, Abigail... Right, that he's taken from First Samuel that we saw, but he also has a sister, Abigail. And so these sons that have evidently come from Saul's camp at some time during his kingship and now are under his leadership, Joab and Abishai and Asahel, they're his nephews. And so Joab, he sees the offensive of Abner coming. He is intimately knowledgeable of his military might of his prowess of his how dangerous and bad a guy he is but notice the commitment that he has when abner comes to joab at the pool of gibeon and they meet finally in these political discussions and he makes the challenge let the young men arise and compete before us joab is up for the battle he says let them arise And then Asahel, Joab's brother, he takes out on foot. This is an interesting guy in Scripture, isn't it? We're we're told in verse 18 that there were these three sons of Zariah, these nephews of David. And then it says, now Asahel was as swift a foot as a wild gazelle. So what's going to ensue is a foot race. Not for the purpose of winning a prize, but Abner is now on the defensive running. Because they lost that day at Gibeon and it did not go the way that they had hoped that it would go. And Joab has made this wise and prudent defense as they went up and 
cut off the forces at Gibeon, and they battled intense or fiercely, it says, that day at the pool at Gibeon. And now Abner is fleeing, but they don't just let him go. They don't. The opposition that has come against God's king and against the Lord's anointed, they are after him. And Asahel, the one of the brothers that can really move, the one that's the really fast runner, who's also must have had some military might as well, or he would not have gone. They run out after this Abner, chasing him literally on foot like a wild gazelle. It says in verse 19, And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he did not turn to the right nor to the left from following him. He was committed. Joab and his brothers committed to following after him. And then Asahel, their brother, we don't know if the, in the text here it, it may mean when it says that he was hit with the butt of the spear. It's kind of odd. I mean, you get this picture that Abner's running right this way and Asahel's gazelle-like coming up behind him in a hurry and he takes his spear and he just sort of shoves it back after telling him to back off a little bit. We're not sure if it means the butt of the spear or if it means like a rear thrust of the spear, which it had to have been, but it, it could have been that he turned the spear around and drove it through him because it did go all the way through Asahel and came out the other side. Not to be too gruesome, that's what the text says, right? And so we have to, we have to wrestle with these details. But so Asahel dies that day. But Joab and Abner, they are not, I mean, Joab and Abishai, they are not, they're not persuaded to stop. Look at verse 24. After their brother has perished from running after Abner because of his opposition to Judah and the king's, the Lord's anointed king. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. They went after him. They continued steadfast. They were, they were committed. They were willing to put forth the necessary effort. Abner's opposition Joab's commitment such that they only relent after Abner pleads with them. Is the sword going to continue to devour? They finally blow the trumpet, which is a, it's a, this does not mean that Abner somehow made a wonderful uh, appeal to them and they felt bad about what had happened that day. And that's not what's going on here. The trumpet being blown was a, was a sign of victory. And so they finally relent and they blow the trumpet victoriously and they then retreat back to Hebron, back to home base. There's this long war, it says in 3.1. But, but the last thing historically that I want you to consider, as we've already seen, and so it will not take but just a moment, is the loss suffered that day. The loss suffered that day. There was great loss. Friends, there was great sin that day. And sin leads to great loss. There was Abner, who in his pride and arrogance, that that will come into clearer view in the next uh, chapter in chapter 3 and all of his intentions and purposes. But in deep darkness and sin, he comes against the purposes of God and against God's anointed king. And we're told in the text there that, that it does not go well for Abner and it does not go well for his men. For from the forces of little old Judah at Hebron, while they lose 20, 
the very end of this text tells us that Abner's men, the loss was 360 that were slain that day at Gibeon and then and then the maybe day or two retreat back to where they were headed before Joab relented. There was terrible loss because of Abner's sin. But friends, there was also terrible loss because of Joab and Abishai and Asahel's commitment, wasn't it? Because of their effort. It's very interesting, isn't it, that God's plans for David and, and his providences and purposes to bring David to the throne of Israel cost David a nephew, cost the forces of Judah 20 men. The battle was fierce that day. The opposition that came was significant that day. The commitment required was incredible that day. As they took up arms against the evil that came. And friends, they were prepared to die. They were prepared to lose. And David lost a nephew. Along with 19 other men. What can we learn from a text like this? Well, I hope that you've been able to see as we've spoken, there are a number of things. But, but most importantly and significantly, the first thing that I think we can learn is that God's plans for us are not usually easy. And I say usually because sometimes they are. Friends, the providences of God and his purposes and plans, there are seasons of uh, immense joy. And, 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 and ease of life. But I, I submit to you that that's not the normal, that's not the ordinary course for the Christian, is it? Christ, Christ our Lord told, tells us that in this life you will have tribulation. But fear not because I've overcome the world. Right? We saw in Psalm 71, and in, I intentionally reading that psalm this morning, that in, that in God we find Protection and refuge, a strong fortress. Friends, why do we need a strong fortress? Precisely because the opposition is fierce. And because God's plans and purposes for us, even when we are in, in absolutely in the center of God's will for our lives, it will often be difficult. God's plans for us are not usually easy. And contrary to what pop psychology and theology will tell you, it is a terrible idea to parse out whether or not you're doing what God's called you to do based on how easy it is. There's so much of that. You, you go to a pastor for counseling or you hear these guys preaching on TV to thousands and thousands of people that call themselves Christians and they're telling you, you know, the reason everything is hard is because you're just not listening. The reason everything is difficult is because you're just not praying. The reason everything is difficult is because you just need to I mean, I can't even articulate the garbage that they're spewing. Friends, that's not an appropriate stick by which to measure whether or not God's will for your life is being brought. Ask Job. Ask David. Ask Paul. Ask Peter and Stephen. Ask Jesus. I wonder what they would say to your best life now. Our best life is one day. Our best life is in eternity. And our hope is in Christ, that in Him we have a safe harbor, not a calm sea upon which to sail, but that we will be sailed with 
And that Jesus will come alongside us and will get in the boat with us and will provide us a harbor in which to dock where our souls will find an eternal rest and joy and peace. A final Sabbath rest. But friends, it is not today. Today we must battle. And that's the second application. Not only is it that God's plans are not always easy, and his purposes and providences and sovereign care for us does not mean that we are going to have it easy. But secondly, that we must be ready to fight. We must be ready to fight for the promises of God that have been made to us and for the advancement of his kingdom. And so many Christians, they flounder in the, they flounder in the sea of uncertainty and confusion and frustration. And they come to pastors and leaders and Christians. They come to me all the time and I don't know what it is that God wants me to do and I don't know why my life is so hard and I, I don't have any idea what all, you know, it's all so confusing. And I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't intend to mock them, friends. But God's promises for us do not just fall out of the sky and knock us out. They don't. When, when people come to me floundering in the sea of confusion and uncertainty, I, I want to I encourage and ask them, how fervent and faithful are you in worship? Are you intentional to be a part of the physical body of Christ? To be encouraged by them? To sit under the means of grace that God has appointed so that you can be encouraged by them and strengthened by them? How often do you read your, wor- read your Bible? How often do you pray? How often do you think and meditate? It takes work. God promises to bless us and he promises to lead us, but he does not promise that he will do it in the midst of our laziness. He's not just going to shoot us with holy and gracious lightning bolts out of the sky. There's an effort required because there's a battle raging. And it's not only for God's promises. Friends, we have to be ready to fight for the kingdom and its advancement. Pastor Bill just got finished preaching about the whole armor of God. That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That David, in the midst of all of this turmoil, that Joab and Abishai and Asahel, that they did not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the air, against darkness and evil. Friends, are we ready to fight? But thirdly, we have to be ready to lose. And I don't mean lose the war. Jesus said, any man that loves his life will lose it. But any man that loses his life for my sake, he will keep it. He will find it. He will live eternally. Friends, what are we willing to give up to fight the good fight, as Paul says? Do we have this type of commitment? Do we put forth this type of effort? And finally, practically, one of the things that we can learn from a text like this is that only a fool opposes God and his kingdom. Only a fool opposes God and his kingdom. Be clear, friends, that Abner's problem was not with David. Abner's Offensive attack against Judah and Hebron, it was not because of a personal problem or struggle with David. It was because of a personal problem and struggle with God. 
See, if you turn over to chapter 3, and I'm going to get you to look there. Let's look just, we'll, we'll pick one. Let's just look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 3, verses 9, 10, and 11. This is Abner speaking. And we'll see this next week. But this is Abner speaking. Listen to what he says. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth, that is to Abner, could not answer another word because he feared him. And you see this reality down in verse 18 again. Now it uh, now then bring it about, Abner says, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel. What is it that it's teaching us? What is it that it's showing us? It is that Abner was well aware of the promises of God to make David king. And what is it that Abner wanted? He wanted to be made king. He wanted to be powerful. He wanted to be his own boss. He wanted to live his own life. And he was not okay with God's plans and purposes for the establishment and building of God's kingdom. And so he did not raise his hand against David. He raised his fist against God Almighty. And he said, I don't care if you've promised that David will be king. I have other plans. And friends, I do not have to tell you again that it did not go well for Abner that day. We'll see the depth of his vanity and arrogance next week, even again as we look at that passage in chapter 3. But friends, I would ask you this morning, have you ever been like Abner? I have. And I dare say that we all have. At some point or another in our life, think about it. Where what God wanted and purposed, I did not. When the difficulties of God's providence were too great and I was given to the sin of unbelief. Times in my life when I wanted to be my own king, when I wanted to determine my own destiny, wanting ultimate autonomy, when God said go to Hebron and I wanted to go North. Friends, let us be very careful. For the purposes and plans of God for David's life, and for Joab's life, and for Asahel's life, and for my life and yours, and that of all of humanity, let us be careful to remember that the purposes and plans of God, they are not written in pencil. He does not design in a way where it is subject to an eraser. Friends, the purposes and plans of a sovereign God for my life and yours and for his church and his kingdom, they will stand for all of eternity. And before that is seen from your perspective as a discouragement, let me give you one one way in which to view that as a wonderful and beautiful reality. Back at Psalm 71, as I close, we read at the beginning of this service. God gave the command to save me. Friends, aren't you glad that even you couldn't thwart 
the plans and purposes of God to save you. Because if I could have, I would have. I tried hard. And so did you. But that when we were yet dead in trespass and sin, being pursued by the holy hound dog of the Spirit, Psalm 23, unable to be reconciled by our own strength and effort that God commanded save him. And because of the eternal decree and purposes of God for you, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made Jesus to become sin so that he could make you righteous. Friends, the purposes and the plans and the providences of God, they will stand for his glory and his kingdom. And only a fool would come against them. In just a moment, we're going to uncover the Lord's table and celebrate the Lord's Supper together as we gather around that table, thinking about what it is that he did for us in Christ. May that have new meaning for you this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask the men to come forward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you that it is because of your sovereign plan and purposes that that sinners might be made righteous. God, thank you that you are a God that is not hindered by sin and, and that no man can stand in your way, that your plans will come to pass and that your promises will be enjoyed by your chosen. God, thank you for Christ our Lord in whom we have been made new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.